Hey guys, I hope you're doing great today and I can't wait to bring you the show. But before I do, I just wanna make a quick request. If you're listening to the show and you're getting good value and you're enjoying the content and you feel that it's valuable, if you could just take a second and go and give me a rating and review in whatever platform you listen, whether it be Apple or Google or uh, Spotify, whatever it is, just go and give me a rating and review, that would be very appreciated. All right guys, let's dive in. hundred percent. You send that seven day notice immediately. You follow a process like a machine. You do not let yourself get emotionally involved in the tenants drama. You're listening to the just start real estate podcast. If you're serious about your real estate investing business and need real answers, you are in the right place. And now your host, Mike Simmons. All right. Thank you for joining me on Just Start Real Estate. I appreciate you being here, guys. I'm excited to bring you another replay of my live Q&A that I do every single Wednesday. And now, super exciting news. We stream live on not only Facebook, we stream live on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on YouTube, and on Instagram. And so I used to call this my Facebook Lives, and they are still on Facebook, but they're also on all my other channels. So wherever you are, whatever social network you prefer, you can watch me there. And I'm excited about that. And this was our maiden voyage with that new multi-streaming, multi-platform um, technology. And, and we had a good time with it. And I think it went really, really well. And in this episode, we talked about a lot of cool things. Among them, response rate on your mailers. What should it be? What happens if it's not good enough? And and I answered that question for someone who had a very specific question about a certain number of postcards they were sending, and they just want to know what's going on here. Uh, also, we talked about tenants who don't pay. What do you do when a tenant is late? Even if they're late for the first time, how do you handle that? What's the best practice there? Um, does real estate investing for cash flow make sense for someone who has a great career that they don't want to leave? Should they still be investing in real estate? I answered that question. Then we also talked a little bit about how to finance your first deal, going through conventional financing versus other financing options. We covered all that stuff. So this is a really good one, guys. Fun episode. I know you're going to love it. And without any further ado, I give you my latest multi-platform, multi-streaming live Q&A replay. All right, guys, here we are. We're live. Uh, I'm ready to get started. I'm excited about this. We are here every Wednesday, as you know, guys, at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific. Um, I'm here to answer your questions about real estate. And I think if you log on, if you're a regular listener of this, if you show up live every week and you interact, you'll know that I'm just giving it all out. Like I'm telling you exactly how it is. I'm giving you uh, the advice that's helped me build a seven-figure real estate business, but not just me. I've helped hundreds of other people build six and seven figure real estate businesses as well. And I really do know what it takes to help you guys get to that point. Whatever it is, whatever your goal is, not everybody wants a seven figure business. I get that. Some people are just trying to make a nice, healthy second income or a side income. And maybe you only need $10,000, $20,000. Maybe you need to make $100,000 on the side to kind of help with things and make things a little easier. We can do that. 
Uh, but there are tried and true ways of doing that. There's definitely a formula and there's definitely procedures that work time and time again. And I get it. I've been where you are, no matter where you are. If you're brand new, if you've been doing this for years, if you've done you know, dozens and dozens of deals or not, I've been there and I know what's happening in your business for the most part. And I know the things that you're probably struggling with. And so you showing up here and asking questions is free. And it just helps you get down the road a little bit faster, a little farther, and help you avoid things that will potentially help you know make you lose money or you know potentially could derail your business. Let's avoid that. Why make the same mistakes that everybody makes? Like I can help you avoid them, then let me help you avoid them. All right, guys. Uh, like every week, we get questions throughout the week. People email us, people DM me, and stuff like that, and ask ask different questions. So we bring those here instead of. I used to answer questions through instant message and you know Facebook and through email, and it got to take up a lot of time. And so part of the reason I do this is so that I can answer those questions here and everyone can hear the answer because uh, what happens is somebody asks me a question through email and then somebody else DMs me with basically the same question. I might as well answer them in one place all at the same time. And so that's why we do this. Okay, uh, let's go ahead and dive into uh, the first question that I got. Um, <clears throat> so this one's about direct mail. And the question is... Uh, or the statement, I guess, is I only got two calls and no deals from the 500 postcards I sent out this past month. Any suggestions? Well, um, in the spirit of telling it like it is and, and giving you the advice that I wish people would have given me when I started out, I'll tell you 500 postcards isn't enough. It just I don't know of a market where 500 postcards really makes a significant dent and allows you to really get any traction and do deals. Um, I, you know, two calls on 500 postcards is like about a half a percent. It's just under a half a percent response rate. And to be honest with you, a half a percent is not the worst uh, response rate I've ever heard of lately. It used to be a lot better than that. It used to be you could get a half to 1%, like a couple, two, two, three years ago. And before that, you know, when I started doing direct mail, I'll be honest, the first time I sent cards out, I sent 800, not much more than this. And I got my first deal. But back then, the response rates and the leads that we were getting were so much better th than they are now. And the economy was different and the housing market was different and real estate was different. So everything's different now. But the bottom line is, Postcards work. They, they do work, right? They work differently in different markets. They're not as effective for everyone. However, 500 postcards isn't enough in any market. And, you know, let alone if you're in a competitive market. If you're in, you know, in parts of Texas and parts of Florida and South, um, South California, you know, the southern part of California, or even any really any part of California along the coast. It's just really competitive. But even in other states around the country, there's Midwest states that are pretty competitive. I'm in Michigan, and most people don't consider Michigan to be a highly competitive. Like nobody thinks of Michigan as being like super competitive real estate, and it's hard to get a deal. But I'll tell you what, if I sent out 500 cards, I don't think I'd get more than two calls either, and I would not get a deal. It just doesn't work usually. The other thing to consider is, and, and when I say 500 is not enough, 500 is not even close to enough if you're mailing to just equity, for example. So if you're pulling equity lists, like, hey, I'm going to mail to everybody with 50% equity, and you send out 500 cards, it's never going to work. The only time 500 cards could start approaching a number that could make sense, and maybe you're sort of close, is if you're mailing niche lists. And niche lists are, 
you know, they're, they're lists that are comprised of people in very specific situations like tax delinquent, code violation, divorce, inheritance. Like those are, those lists are a little smaller and they're real specific. And you probably don't need to send as many cards to a list like that to get a deal than you would to like an equity list where you're just blasting out to equity. If it's an equity list, I don't care what market you're in. I really think you need to be kind of approaching the four to 5,000 cards in order to really have a chance of getting anything done. Okay. If, if it's equity, if it's niche list, depending on the market, you know, maybe you can get away with a thousand to 2000 and still get a deal. It might be a little bit easier because niche lists tend to be a little bit more active. They're a little bit more hot. The people on those lists are a little bit more motivated than perhaps an equity list, right? Because just because someone has equity, it doesn't mean they want to sell their house, right? Well, just because someone's on a niche list doesn't necessarily mean they want to sell their house either, but we know that they have a pain point, a very specific pain point. If somebody is on code violation, for example, and that's the one you're sending to, I mean, if the city's been hassling them and maybe it's a house they don't even live in, it's a rental or maybe they inherited it or something, and it's just tall grass and there's like mail piling up and the city just starts sending them letters and saying, hey, you got to take care of this or we're going to charge you, right? That's a pain point. It's a very specific pain point. So people on niche lists more often want to sell their house or need to sell their house than a straight equity list. And that's why an equity list usually requires a higher volume of mail in order to make it work. And so um, if you're mailing equity, 500 just isn't enough. So if that's what's happening here, 500 postcards won't get you there anytime soon. It's just not, you know, it's like saying, hey, uh, you know, I'm in a plane and we're going to go 10 miles an hour and I'm going to see if we get off the ground. Like you can go 10 miles an hour around the earth. You're never going to get off the ground. You need more than that. You need more thrust. And when it comes to direct mail, you need a certain amount of thrust in order to, to take flight and 500 is not enough thrust. 500 is going, you know, 50 miles an hour, 20 miles an hour, whatever. I don't even know what a plane takes to take off. I'm totally making all these numbers up. But whatever whatever it takes to get off the, off the ground in a plane, you're not hitting it with 500 cards, okay, for that analogy. Um, so that's, that's kind of my answer there. You just need more... You need more thrust. You need more cards going out. I mean, there could be a problem with your card. That's a whole separate question, right? If, maybe if you were live, we could, we could, you could send it to me or something. I don't know. But if you, if you're listening to this and it's you, it's just your, this is your question. Send me the card and I'll take a look at it. But I, I think it's either um, your card and the volume or just the volume. The volume is a problem for sure. But I can't say if you send out 10,000 postcards, you're going to get a deal either because maybe your card has a problem. So there's, you know, this is a, a maybe a, a multi-layered, you know, kind of a problem potentially. So, um, okay. So that's that one. Um, let's see. Let's see. Next question. Next question. I have three, a three unit multifamily home. And for the first time, one of my tenants cannot pay their rent on time. I don't want to set a bad precedent. Precedence. How should I handle this if I don't have specific guidelines in the lease? Uh, you don't need guidelines in the lease, um, except for hopefully your lease tells them when their rent is due. But you know, for the sounds of it, it's like for the first time, your tenants can't pay their rent on time. Okay. <clears throat> if they're one day late, obviously you have a phone call with them, send them a text like, hey, just checking in what's going on. Rent's late. Just want to see what's going on and hear what they have to say. If it's a month late, like if they're like 
you know, almost time for the next rent and they haven't paid last month's, that's a different story. Here's my, and, and we have this, this situation going on right now. L- literally right now, I had this conversation with my dispositions manager in my company. And we have somebody right now who's two months late. <clears throat> and my dispo guy wants to have a conversation with them, hear them out. And what I have learned over the years, and I, I wasn't like I'm not directly involved in the tenant for my company. Like I don't I don't deal with that level of detail during the day, so day to day. But what I can tell you is, as someone who has had rentals for many, 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 many years, you should the the day that somebody is late, you should send a seven day notice. And a seven day notice basically says, if they don't get caught up within seven days then you are going to evict them. That's what it says, okay? The reason you do it immediately is because in my experience, people will give excuse after excuse. They'll string you along. They'll string you along until pretty soon you're four or five months behind and they're still giving you excuses and then you start the eviction process. And depending on your state and the local laws, it could take 30 days. It could take 90 days. Who knows, right? It could take a long time to get them out. So they're going to get another month, two, maybe three for free before you actually get them out of there. That costs you money. You're missing out on all that rent. And so my experience is, you send them a seven-day notice, letting them know that within seven days, you're going to start the eviction proceedings. You can stop those eviction proceedings anytime you want. But until you get that seven-day notice in their hand, the clock hasn't started. They have they still have all the time in the world to get you that rent because you haven't started the clock. So in my experience, when someone's late, I send them a seven-day notice, even if it's day one. And I say, you get that thing current within seven days, just rip up the notice because I'm not going to take you to court. I'm only going to take you to court if you don't get current in seven days. And then even after seven days, you still have the opportunity to make that decision if you want to go through with it. However, I suggest you go through with it. Don't um, set a precedence like you're talking about of making threats that you're not willing to follow through. But I say, get that seven day notice in their hands fast, like after the first day that they're late, I say you send them a notice. It just should be part of your process. And I think it's always smart too, if you're not using property management, one of the great reasons to use a property management company when you're when you're a landlord is because the property management company conducts business as if it's business. They don't let it get personal. They don't get caught up in people's sob stories or excuses. They just have a process. Someone's late, seven-day notice goes out. At the end of seven days, we're not current, we we start the eviction process. If they don't get caught up at any point, we evict them. Like It's just boom, boom, boom. That's the way it is. I've talked to so many landlords and everybody who's had rentals for any length of time and has gone through anything like this, all of them will tell you 100%. You send that seven-day notice immediately. You follow a process like a machine. You do not let yourself get emotionally involved in the tenant's drama. They will try to get you emotionally involved in their drama, just like they are. You have to fight it and resist it. You cannot let that happen, or you'll end up with a bunch of tenants stringing you along, giving you excuses that you'll end up evicting anyway, but you're going to lose a lot, lot more money if you listen to that, to the excuses, get caught up in the drama. And so for this case, they were they were late for the first time. If they're only a day or two late, maybe you do give them a call, a courtesy call, and say, hey, it's late. What's going on? 
oh yeah, you know, we got that. We're going to bring it to you tomorrow. Okay. They don't bring it tomorrow. Seven day notice. Like I would give someone grace if it's their first time ever being late, but that's it. One strike. You're late once. I'll give you a couple of days. Okay. Listen to me closely. Not a couple of weeks, not a couple of months, a couple of days to fix it. If it doesn't get fixed in a couple of days, we start the seven day notice. And if they're like, oh, what's going on? Oh my gosh, I've never been late. How can you do this? Go ahead, calm down. I gave you two days. Now you get seven. You get seven more days to get current. However, if you're not current in the next seven days, I'm going to start eviction proceedings and you will get evicted. You will be gone. Okay. It's not personal. Okay. It's just not. But as a landlord, you owe it to yourself. You're running a business, okay? You have to have rents coming in so you can pay for maintenance, you can pay taxes, insurance. Maybe if you borrow the money or you have a loan against the house, like most landlords do, you have you have to pay, you know, is, is the bank letting you not pay your mortgage? Is your investor not letting you pay on that loan? Is everybody giving you a break because your tenant had a few bad months? Nope. And if they can't pay, it's not a charity. You have to go through with the eviction. You have to. You just have to. Otherwise, you're just running a charity. And if you want to run a charity, that's totally fine. But call it what it is. Don't call it rentals. Don't call it passive income or real estate income. Call it a charity and just write off the losses, I guess. It's not what I do. I don't have rentals for that reason. So seven-day notice immediately. It's up to you if you follow through with the eviction. But if you if you give them the seven-day notice, I suggest you follow through with it. But you must, you must get that going right away. Okay. <clears throat> Let's go on to the next uh, question here. All right. Next question. Does real estate investing for cash flow make sense if I have a highly successful career and uh, do not intend to make real estate a full-time career? This is an interesting question. And to me, the answer is painfully obvious. It's an emphatic scream from the mountaintops. Yes. Yes, it does make sense to invest for cash flow if you have a highly successful job. And, and it's funny because I think I would say you should invest uh, for cash flow maybe even because you have a highly, because if you have a highly successful career, I'm assuming that means you have a good amount of disposable income. Maybe you have a decent savings. The only time investing in real estate might not make sense for you, and this is a huge if, if you're making just a crazy high return on that money somewhere else, and when I say crazy high, in real estate, it's pretty easy to achieve what's called the 1% rule. The 1% rule says for um, whatever you spend on an investment property, like a rental, for example, okay, you buy a rental for $80,000. I'm just using... Michigan numbers here. If you're in California, just inflate the number. Same same principle. In Michigan, you could buy a house for $80,000, put $20,000 into it for improvements. You're all in at $100,000. That house will easily rent for $1,000, okay? So if your rent is equal to 1%, at least 1% of your all-in purchase and renovation, everything it costs you to get that house, that's called the 1% rule. 
If you can achieve the 1% rule, and by the way, the 1% rule is very easy to achieve in, in a lot of states in the country, not just Michigan, a lot of states. If you can achieve the 1% rule and you can make $1,000 a month on a $100,000 investment, that's a 12% return. That's 12% return. Now, if your cash reserves are making more consistently than 12%, then maybe real estate doesn't make sense. Maybe you should just do what you're doing other than real estate that's making you consistently, reliably more than 12%. If you're averaging more than 12 in some other investment vehicle, maybe you should do that other investment vehicle. But here's something to consider. The 1% rule is easily achieved in a lot of places. The 2% rule is very achievable in some places. Michigan's one of those places. A lot of Midwest states, a lot of Southern states can get the 2% rule, which means you put $100,000 into a property, it'll rent for $2,000, okay? Now you're at 24% return. If you're beating that with something else, bless you. Do that other thing, okay? But I'm here to tell you, real estate is absolutely something you should be considering, or at least at least considering, you should be doing it probably, if you have a highly successful career and you have the ability to buy rentals, for example. Those can be great. You can also take money, and if you don't want to invest in, in single-family rentals and you don't want any of the hassles of dealing with any of that, you can put money into a syndication of someone who's buying an apartment building. Maybe they're buying an apartment building for $3 million and they're bringing on investors, limited partner investors who are going to average, you know, eight to 12% return on that money, completely passive. Like literally you just get a statement at once a quarter and a dividend or, or some sort of a, um, uh, you know, payout from that, from that investment. And you literally just Checks just get sent to you, ACH, right? And you're just making money with doing absolutely nothing. That's very attainable. So yeah, real estate is something you should be considering. Absolutely. Now, you got to be careful just because you have money. Honestly, the people who have money who start investing in real estate, they're they're in the most dangerous position. If you have a lot of money and not a lot of education, you have the ability to buy houses and make mistakes and it won't wreck your life. Be careful. You should work with somebody, get some advice, hire someone to help you do something so that you don't waste money. Just because you have it, obviously, you don't want to throw it down the drain. So you need to make sure these investments are good investments. But you know, 12% is pretty pedestrian. 12% is easy to get. And if you can get 12% on your money, I doubt you're doing a lot better than that anywhere else. And if you are, keep doing it. Keep doing it. Don't worry about real estate. But if you're not, then real estate it could absolutely be uh, a solution for you. So I would definitely check it out. Okay, let's uh, let's try the next one here. Okay, uh, any advice for financing my first deal when conventional lenders are telling me that I need experience to qualify? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, what I would suggest to you is if <clears throat> conventional lenders are telling you, you need, first of all, I cannot believe they're telling you you need experience. That's weird. Most banks will give you a loan on, I think, up to 10 uh, investment properties if you have a W-2 and you make you know pretty good money and all that stuff. Usually, they don't, they don't beat you up for experience. They might beat you up because of your credit, perhaps. They look at credit for sure. They look at credit and they look at the investment that you're that you're trying to make. 
If they're telling you that you need more experience, I would try a different conventional lender, maybe, first of all. But second of all, there are so many lenders out there that do not care about your experience. They care. It's called asset-based lending. I know because I run a company. I have, I'm a lender, and I run an asset-based lending company. I lend people money based off of the asset, the house that they're trying to borrow money for. So if you come to me and say, I've never done a deal before, but here's what I have. I've got a house that I can buy for $100,000. That's the purchase price. The renovation budget that I've come up with is $20,000. So I'm going to put 20 and I and I would look at, you know, I look at it myself and I look at it and go, okay, yeah, 20,000 seems about right. Purchase price is 100. I'll underwrite that loan and meaning I will run comps. I'll look at it myself and see what I think it could be worth after repair. If I go and look at that house and I determine that after repair value for that house is $250,000 and you have no experience, but you want to borrow money to, to buy it for a hundred and put 20 into it to renovate it. And it will be worth objectively $250,000. I will loan you that money all day long because my investment and my loan is very secure. If you default, if you screw things up and you don't pay me like any bank, I'll foreclose on the property. And now I have a property that was purchased for $100,000 that's worth $250,000. So as a lender, I feel very comfortable making that loan. And most, if not all, hard money lenders would feel the exact same way. And so you need to look for hard money lenders. They will lend you money in most cases based purely off of the asset that you're trying to buy. If they think it's a good investment, they'll loan you the money. Other than that, the other great solution for borrowing money for investment purposes, for flips or whatever you're doing, is uh, private, private lenders. So private lenders are just high net worth individuals, people who have a lot of money, either in the bank or an IRA, and they want to lend to real estate because they know that they can make a higher return than they can in the stock market, that they can with, you know... Uh, you know, all other conventional kind of investments. And so they'll lend money to investors like us at, you know, six, seven, eight, nine percent interest and and they'll loan you the money. They they typically don't necessarily care about experience either. Some of them might. It's you know, everyone's different because it's individual based. So you're you're dealing with high net worth individuals. If they are very understanding of real estate and they might want to know what your experience is. But what I have noticed over the years are that High net worth individuals are interested in making a return on their money. They're not necessarily interested in you. They want to make sure that the investment's good. And so they're going to do a lot of asset-based lending as well. But, you know, they might be a little bit harder to convince than a hard money lender. Hard money lenders are typically very black and white. They're just business, right? Like I talked about uh, in the past question about the tenant just being real business and real matter of fact about things. Hard money lenders just follow a process. They look at what you want. They look at what they think you you think it'll be uh, cost to renovate it. They see if they agree with you. They underwrite it to see what it could be worth afterward. If there's enough of a spread, they'll loan you the money. Simple. It's very straightforward. I do it all the time. And so hard money lenders and private lenders are far better options than conventional, except for interest rate. Conventional lenders are going to lend you money at a much, much, much lower interest rate. Hard money lenders are going to be in the 10 to 15% range. Private money is whatever you negotiate, but you know, normally it's in the six to nine range, somewhere in there is most, most private money. So hard money and private money are easier to get, but they, they cost more. 
conventional loans are a little tougher, but if you're going to buy like a, a rental and you're going to hold it for the next 25 or 30 years, getting a conventional loan is great. Get as many as they'll give you before you go somewhere else to get a different kind of loan because the interest rate's so low and that matters over time. If you're borrowing money to flip a house and you're only going to have the money for six months, don't don't even bother. With, in my opinion, don't bother with conventional. They're going to make you jump through a million hoops. It's going to be a nightmare, difficult. It's gonna you're going to wake up in a cold sweat. Go to a hard money lender. Go to a private lender. They're much easier to work with when it comes to a six month fix and flip kind of a loan. So that's totally what I would do. Um, if I were financing my first deal and somebody was giving me uh, some sort of hassle, uh, but guys, listen, if you if you're trying, you know, you're getting a first time loan here, right? And so you have questions, but I know there are people listening to this, watching this, that have deeper questions, maybe even more advanced questions, right? Maybe you've done 10 deals, maybe you've done 20 deals, maybe you've done five deals. And you're like, listen, I know how to get my money for the first deal. Like, I'm not worried about getting money for my next deal. I'm worried about getting money if I have 10 deals going on at once. I'm worried about, I can't do all the work if I'm doing 10 deals at once. I need to look at when do I hire somebody? Who do I hire first? How do I pay them? How do I find them? How do I train them? What do I say? What do I do? Um, there's a lot of things that go into building a business. If you're just going to do a flip here and there, buy a, one rental a year, like you can sort of guess your way through that and kind of like blindly find your way. But if you're trying to build something here, if you want a business that does multiple six figures or even into the seven figures, if that's your goal to get out of the rat race, to get out of your nine to five that you just feel like it's sucking your soul, I was there. I know what that feels like. That's where I really can come in and help you in a big way. It's with a program called Seven Figure Investor. If you go to sevenfigureinvestor.com, and it's on the screen right now, that's the word seven spelled out, sevenfigureinvestor.com. I have a solution for you. I want to show you exactly what I did to go from doing a deal here and there to doing 10 to 15 deals a month and doing over seven figures in profit, not revenue, guys, okay? In profit. I did it within a 12-month period, and you can too. I can show you how I did that. I've done it. I've helped, I've helped other people do this. Dozens of other people do this over the years, and I want to help you now, but you have to go to sevenfigureinvestor.com. Go check it out, guys. There's nothing to lose from going to the site, reading a little bit more. If you want to email me and ask me a question about it, you have a specific concern or question, you can email me at Mike at juststartrealestate.com. Ask me any questions you want, but go there and check it out. There's another uh, round of the program opening soon. We're in week three of the current round of Seven Figure Investor, and it's going phenomenally. It is awesome. People are loving it, and they are just going to crush it. They are absolutely learning what it takes to crush it. And I want to teach you too, but you have to go to sevenfigureinvestor.com. Go there, check it out. I will be there for you to help you. Like I said, the next round starts very, very soon. So go and reserve your spot right now. It's not open to unlimited people. You have to go reserve your spot before it's too late. All right, guys, I'm going to be here again for you next week at 7 p.m. Eastern time, 4 p.m. Pacific. Come, log on, be live, participate, ask questions. Let's get to the bottom of your problems. I cannot wait to see you. All right, guys, we'll see you next time. All right, I hope you enjoyed that. Remember, I do these Q&As live on Facebook on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. I hope you enjoyed this. Tune in next week for another installment of live Q&As answering 
your questions. Okay, until next time.